You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, it's please a, visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information uh, about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, uh, please visit JCastNetwork.com. Uh, majesty of space and time. Uh, we pray uh, tonight for peace in our community, peace in our country, and peace around the world. And there are uh, forces, um, tragically, sadly, horrifically, um, arrayed against uh, against goodness and arrayed against uh, um, the, the cause of peace. And so we pray that uh, that uh, justice prevail in places like Ferguson, Missouri, and as far as places like Iraq. And we know that peace will only be established through justice. And we pray that, in the words of the prophet, justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Amen. Amen. What does God want from you? Okay, so I want to start with a story. Not many people know exactly what happened uh, on Mount Sinai with Moses and God. Uh, but uh, the story is told of one dialogue between Moses and God on top of the mountain. And uh, it goes like this. So God is dictating the Torah to Moses, and God gets to the point in the Torah where God says, uh, Thou shalt not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And Moses says, hold on a second, God, hold on a second. Do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. That means that we're not allowed to have cheeseburgers. <laughs> and God says, no, 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 Moses. I'm going to say it again. Thou shalt not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And Moses says, okay, thou shalt not boil a kid in its mother's milk. So that means we need to have separate dishes. I get it. We need to have separate dishes between meat and dairy. And God says, no, Moses, Moses. Listen to me. Thou shalt not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And Moses says, oh, why didn't you say so, God? I got it. What that means is you're supposed to wait six hours after eating meat before you eat dairy. Now I get it. And God, exas- exasperated, says, okay, fine, Moses, have it your way. <laughs> um, this is one of the central challenges, one of the central problems in the Jewish tradition is that we have a, uh, a Torah that is filled with uh, divine commandments uh, and filled with other sources of wisdom and stories that are supposed to teach us ostensibly how to live our lives, how to make the world a better place. But sometimes the commandments are opaque. Sometimes they are hard to decipher and hard to uncover. Uh, Sometimes the stories uh, defy easy explanation and easy moralizing. And so it's very hard uh, from the point of view of the tradition to understand the very basic question that I think many of us have in our lives, which is, what does God want from us? What does God want from us? If you're like me, you've asked that question from time to time in your life. What does God want from me? Um, For me, this is really at the heart and soul of um, what being Jewish is about, is uh, the, the searching for and hopefully, in some respects, the discovery of um, what God wants me to do in the world, what God wants me to do in life. And from a certain point of view, we turn to religion 
to try to answer this question. And often what religion answers back is um, vagaries and, uh, and, and opaque statements and things that are hard to, uh, to get to the core of. Um, so this is, I think, the central challenge, is, is what does God uh, want from you? And uh, there is one passage that, um, uh, you know, I must have read a thousand times in Torah, but never really stopped to reflect on and stopped to think about, um, and stopped to think about in the context of that question. And it turns out that the question is actually embedded in the first line of that passage in the Torah, but it's easy to miss. It's not a it's not a particularly famous passage, although there are some famous things in it. We'll look at that. It's not a particularly famous passage. It's not like the Shema. It's not like the Ten Commandments. It's not like the burning bush or the creation of the world that we saw um, uh, earlier in this series that um, are good examples of texts that, uh, that, that don't have easy answers and don't have easy explanations. Um, and it comes in the book of Deuteronomy, um, where, frankly, um, in a book that is itself a lot of repetition of things that have already occurred in the Torah and have already been commanded in the Torah, there is, within Deuteronomy, a lot of seeming repetition and repetitious language. And so if you follow along, um, you know, the passage that we read this past uh, Shabbat that is the second paragraph of the Shema, right? The one that we always read silently because we're too uncomfortable to like really confront and deal with, which is the If it will be that you listen to my commandments, then the rains will fall in their season and you'll have crops and everything will be good. And if you don't, you'll get you know hit by various kinds of plagues and things like that. Um, so that passage is famous enough to make it into the Shema, but it's actually not particularly unique in Deuteronomy. There are several other passages in Deuteronomy that say, more or less the same thing. So it's easy to sort of uh, have glassy eyes in looking at uh, Deuteronomy, maybe even more so than, um, than the book of Leviticus, uh, for me at least. Um, the book of Leviticus dealing with sacrifices and skin issues and, and things like that. Um, at least there's not a lot of repetition. It kind of goes from one subject to the next subject to the next subject. And so you may not like the gore and you may you know, say, well, who gets these skin diseases anymore anyway? But, uh, but at least it's like a different topic. So if you're ADD like me, um, it, it, uh, uh, it's something new each, uh, each chapter. But Deuteronomy has a, a lot of uh, the same things or seemingly the same things in each chapter. So this is a passage that uh, during the course of my life I probably read and you know, really sort of glossed over a million times um, until the uh, first, I don't know if it was the first day of orientation or one of the first days of orientation of rabbinical school, uh, my mentor, Rabbi Brad Artson, led a study session on this uh, passage. Now, I actually don't really remember exactly what he talked what he taught about. Um, Rabbi Arson, I, I remember a lot of, uh, he, and I hope he's not listening to this, um, I, I remember, I remember uh, a lot of what he has taught me, but he also, uh, in addition to the great wisdom that, that he has, and if you have an opportunity to read his books, his writings, a very prolific writer, I encourage you to do so, you'll get a lot from it. Um, but he's also the kind of person that uh, exemplifies the statement that um, people will remember a lot more uh, how you made them feel than what you told them. Right, so um, so I remember feeling inspired and enlivened and um, and uh, um, uh, motivated by his talk that day um, about this passage, but I actually don't remember a lot of his um, interpretations of it. So it could be that some things that I say tonight are uh, um, lifted from him, and they're just in my subconscious and don't really know 
uh, how to separate what he has said from what I'm going to say. Um, and so I hope that, uh, that, that he'll forgive me, but I, but I hope that this serves as enough credit for him to say this. But I, I wouldn't have really thought about this passage. I mean, never have really read this passage were it not for uh, Rabbi Artson leading a session and pointing it out to me. And ever since he led that session, I couldn't get the passage out of my head. It was the, uh, a passage that I kept on coming back to um, to first ask, keep on asking the question of what does God want from me? Um, and then also to um, serve as, I think, a really powerful inspiration um, at what the core of Judaism is trying to drive at. Now, the rabbis of the Talmud um, frequently entertain this question of um, what does God want from me or um, what is Judaism trying to get us to do? What's the core? What's the essence of Judaism? What's the ikar, um, the essential element of Judaism? And there's a really wonderful passage in the Talmud and Tractate Makot that say that each of the famous characters, of, or several famous characters of the Bible, came and reduced the 613 commandments um, down to, first it's down to 10, and then it's down to 7, and then it's down to 4, and then finally they get uh, down, to, um, down to 3, which is the prophet Micah. Micah gets the commandments, 613 commandments, he narrows it down to three, and that's what you have at the top of your page. And I bring it here because I think that what Micah says in really three phrases is uh, what Deuteronomy comes back to in slightly more detail. But Micah says, he has told you, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord seeks from you, only to do justice and to love goodness and to walk humbly with God. Okay, And the rabbis of the Talmud say that if you are able to do those three things, right, which in themselves contain a lot, but if you're able to do those three things, then you really have fulfilled all the commandments of Judaism. Okay? All right, so now Deuteronomy 10 is going to say, I think, something similar uh, in slightly more words, but give us a little bit more richness and a little bit more context. Okay, so here's what, uh, here's what Deuteronomy 10 says, and again, this is Moses speaking here in Deuteronomy. Moses giving his final oration, final uh, message to the Jewish people before they enter the promised land. Remember, he's not going to enter the promised land with the people of Israel. Uh, and so he's giving them his final lessons and his final instruction. So here's what he says. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? Okay, that hits at its core, right? Jews, what is, what is this whole Torah thing that we've been spending all this time talking about and thinking about? Let's boil it down. Let's get down to its essence. What is God really requiring of you? What does God really want from you, right? And it's not to say that God doesn't want, you know, the separate dishes and the uh, separation between meat and milk. It's not saying that God doesn't want that. But what's the, what's the core, right? What are the principles um, of, of Torah? What are the principles of Judaism? What, uh, what, what do we really need to keep in mind? What do we really need to do to ourselves in our lives? Okay, so what does the Lord your God ask of you? Only this. Okay, so now when you hear a phrase like only this, usually what do you think? Only this. <laughs> yeah, not much that's going to come after, and what else? Maybe it's going to be easy, okay? Um, so Moses, at least, uh, uh, thinks of what he's about to say as being not such a big deal, right? 
it's, this is simple stuff, right? I'm going to give you the basics, right? This is elementary. This is Judaism 101, right? This is kindergarten. This is, uh, this is God kindergarten, right? These are, this is all you have to do. It's easy stuff, right? So here's what he says. Only this. To revere the Lord your God, to walk only in his paths, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, keeping the Lord's commandments and laws, which I enjoin upon you today for your good. Simple. Right? <laughs> um, right. So we know that, um, that what Moses phrases as um, a fairly straightforward and simple statement is, um, is actually profoundly hard. Not only uh, profoundly hard to do, but also profoundly hard to understand. Um, what does it mean to revere the Lord your God? What does it mean to walk in God's paths? Um, walk only in God's paths. Um, what does it mean to love God? That's a really challenging one. Uh, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. So it's difficult to do and it's difficult to understand, which makes it more difficult to do. So what I want to do first is try to break these apart one by one. All right, so let's first talk about the first one. To revere the Lord your God. Right, now if you look at the Hebrew of that, the Hebrew is... Um, only to fear the Lord your God. Okay, so the JPS translation, which more or less this translation is, um, that's the Jewish Publication Society, they did a uh, revised translation in, sometime in the 80s, um, translates that word yira as revere, but it's more literally, more contextually as Fear the Lord your God. So there's a couple of issues. One is what does it mean to fear God? And the other is why would we change that to revere God? Okay, so let's just pause there for a second. What does it mean to you to, to fear God? What does that mean? And why is that important? It means that you're punishing God. Can you say more? Say more? Yeah. <laughs> why would I be afraid of that? Well, because God's wrath would probably be more than anybody can. Okay. And so what do I do to incur God's wrath, and what do I not do to incur God's wrath? Well, if you follow his commandments and walk in his path, um, it shows your reverence. Okay. All right. So so the fear here, in your view, is a, is a fear of punishment, right? Um, that, uh, you know, that, that uh, I, you know, um, I don't steal the cookies from the cookie jar because if I do, I'm going to get sent to my room, right? And and the the only reason I don't take the cookies from the cookie jar, I the cookies are delicious. Joseph, you made them. The cookies are delicious, right? I, I really want them. Um, uh, I I worked out today, so I you know I have uh, I, I have uh, um, points, uh, Weight Watchers points that I can make up for, right? whatever. Right? There's lots of good reasons to eat the cookies, but the one reason I don't is because I don't want to get sent to my room. Right? Okay. What? Yeah, what else? Well, if you accept that God's the most powerful force in all the universe, then you would naturally fear him. Mm. Okay, so we naturally, why would we naturally fear well, the most powerful because, force in the universe? Uh, we, uh, we live every moment at his, um, mercy, because he breathes, breathes life into it. Would God want us to be afraid of Well, so that's a good question. Why do you think maybe not? I always think of a good, loving, 
Right. Yeah. And if you think of your fear, you know, I think that changes it. Yeah. Okay. Well, they teach me in the military or in any organization, fear when I face better than love. Mm. Interesting. Do you think that's true? Okay, but uh, what about adults? Okay. I would say uh, it's more to honor God. I think one of the ways that we honor God is not to serve other gods. Now, that's, of course, sounds very simple, but we know it's not quite that simple because different things in our lives would become, so to speak, classed to us. Okay, good. All right, so that gets a bit. Yeah, as much as possible. Yeah. Uh, okay, so to you, fearing God or revering God is a, is a, is a, basically a, a, a statement about um, what you put first in your life. Uh, what's what's top priority? Which to, I, I don't know about you. I mean, it's an interesting one to put into this category of, of fear or of reverence because I actually would I would personally put that under, more into the category of love. Okay, but well, we can talk about that. Yeah. The way it's Yeah. What is the sort of fear? Why not? Uh, because um, it's a respect thing. Okay. So thinking seriously that, that you got this power. So you're not a fan of the buddy Jesus. Do <laughs> <laughs> you guys see that movie Dogma, where uh, the, the the Catholic Church is trying to revamp itself, and they have a new Jesus as the buddy Jesus, and it's like going like this, right? Um, uh, having its thumbs up. So okay. So you say the, the proper the proper approach to God is one of distance, is one, or at least a little bit of distance, is one of uh, one of reverence. Um, you, I, I don't think I have a clear sense of why, though. Why? Why is that the proper? A stance regarding God. Okay, so so there's a uh, there's an there's an otherness about God, right? There is a, uh, a hierarchy between us and God, and it's important in your view to um, to to maintain that hierarchy, to not uh, to, to basically to know our place, right? To know our place regarding our parents, to know our place regarding God. Can't the fear be also because of the awe of the transcendent? Mm. We can't understand them. My ways are not your ways. Yeah. That, that fear could be also awe, yeah. which makes us stand off, like you were saying. And, and in fact, of, of the ways that this word yira is translated from time to time, uh, fear is one way, reverence is revere, reverence is another, um, be in awe of is, a, is another way. And in some ways, these are interconnected uh, uh, terms, as you said, but the, the awe is a, an interesting one. We're gonna, we'll look at uh, a passage probably that you'll enjoy in just a minute regarding awe. Uh, yeah. Last week we talked about consequences and uh, in terms of the Lord, uh, fearing God, respecting God, uh, we hope good consequences. The consequences will come out of it. If we don't, pretty much there would be negative consequences. <laughs> It's, it's uh, similar to what Gail said, right? That, that this is a about reward and punishment. We, or maybe not reward, but certainly punishment. And we we fear. We act primarily out of the fear of punishment, right? That fear is a powerful motivator, maybe more than love, because you know you don't want to have to do a thousand push-ups. Uh, and so, right? Okay. Good. Yeah. You know, from a positive point of view, if you uh, revere the Lord your God, then you don't have to worry about fear. Because all of the other things would be observed in revering God. 
Okay, that's so that's a that's an interesting one. That leads, I think, very nicely into um, one commentary from the Talmud that I wanted us to look at. So let's look at the bottom of page one. This is from the Babylonian Talmud, uh, Tractate Brachot, thirty-three B, um, commenting in, in part on our passage here. Rabbi Chanina further said, "Everything is in the hand of heaven except the fear of heaven." As it says, and now, O Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear? Right? That's our passage. Uh, and it's saying that everything is in the hands of heaven except for fear of heaven. What does that mean? It's going to have to come from you. Not from God. Right. But it'll have to come from you, so that's not in his hands to do it. Okay, good. Any other thoughts? What about fear, to me, indicates being afraid. Yes. And to be afraid would imply that you have something to be afraid of, that God is capable of incurring wrath. Right. Okay. I don't happen to believe that. Yes. Um, so, because too many good things and too many bad things happen with apparently no consequences to people who perform these acts or people who fail to perform these on his and God doesn't seem to intervene. Right. So, in fact, I think that that's precisely what Rabbi Hanina is saying. By saying everything is in the hands of heaven except for fear of heaven, what he's basically saying is God has a lot of power, God's in control of the world, except for, basically, how human beings behave. Right? That, uh, that, that, that the one thing God doesn't control is whether or not we care about uh, what Rather, let me rephrase that. The only thing God doesn't control is whether we think God cares about what we do or not, right? And if we don't think God cares about what we do, then according to the theory, there is no powerful motivator to act in a good way, or there's few powerful motivators to act in a good way. I think that there are some other ones. Yes? If God is feeling that fear, there'd be no free choice. So it, it couldn't be in heaven. Right, it has to be from us. It, but that's exactly right. That's exactly my point, right? Okay. It, um, in order for there to be free choice, it means that God can't control our choice, or which is mounted above our head. Right, exactly. Right, which he chooses not to. Well, it doesn't actually say that in the Talmud. It just says everything is in the hand of heaven except for fear of heaven. It doesn't say that God chooses to not let the fear of heaven be in the hands of heaven. It just says that's a that's a statement of fact. Um, if you recall back to the um, uh, first conversation about uh, Genesis, we talked a little bit about this idea um, that, uh, uh, that, that God may be very powerful, but is not all-powerful. Um, and this is, I think, a good Talmudic example of that idea, right? If God were all-powerful, then free, true freedom of choice would be impossible. Right? And even if you wanted to say God chose to allow human freedom to exist, um, in the moment of, in, in the window of time in which God has chosen to allow human freedom to exist, yeah, at, at least then God is not all powerful. Right? So, um, but, but here you have, um, a, I think, exactly that, that idea, right? That, um, that, that much of what happens in the world. Um, is a result of people feeling like, I mean, most people commit crimes because they assume that they're not going to get caught, right? Because most people, 
if they really thought through and said, you know, you, if I rob that bank, I'm, they're probably going to trigger the alarm and I'm probably going to get caught. And so uh, it's probably not a good idea for me to rob that bank because it, what good are all the riches you had from the bank if you're rotting in jail, right? So most people who decide to rob banks do so because they assume they have a great and foolproof plan that they're not going to get caught doing it, right? And so that, I think, goes uh, to this idea that a at least a powerful motivator for human action um, is the notion that um, that there's no consequences to our, or that there rather that there are consequences to our actions, right? That our actions matter, right? That our that our actions have import. That our actions might hurt us or might hurt other people or have uh, impact beyond um, our our uh, the immediate sphere that we care about. And so what Rabbi Hanina is saying here is that uh, that God controls a lot of things in the world, but one of the reasons that our world is so messed up is because the one thing God doesn't control is whether or not we're afraid of God, right? And then it goes on and asks this, right? So it picks up on this idea that Moses says, only this, right? This is the only thing that uh, you need to do. And it says, is the fear of heaven such a little thing, right? So that God only asks of you this one little thing, right? And the one little thing is to be afraid of heaven, right? Uh, or is to be afraid of God. Has not Rabbi Hanina said in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the Holy One, blessed be he, has in his treasury not except a store of the fear of heaven, as it says, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. Yes. Right? So the fear of heaven is actually a big thing. It's a hard thing. It's an important thing. Most people don't live in the world uh, out of a sense of uh, a fear of heaven. And in fact, the framers of, uh, of our republic um, uh, even the ones that uh, that, that uh, saw themselves um, uh, as less religious or as a-religious thought that um, that the the notion of a of uh, of uh, uh, a god that one stands in reverence of or in fear of is a powerful motivator for good behavior. In some senses, the one of the only checks on human action or inaction. So yes, it's a big thing. For Moses, it was a small thing. Right? Moses got it pretty instantly. So Moses, when he's talking to people, he says it's only this little thing. Right? For Moses, yeah, it was a little thing. Right? As Rabbi Hanina said, to illustrate by a parable, if a man is asked for a big article and he has it, it seems like a small article to him. If he is asked for a small article and he doesn't have it, it seems like a big article to him. So if Moses wasn't afraid of God, and Moses thought that the only thing that God asks of you is to fear God, Moses says, okay, I got some news for you from God about what God wants you to do, but it's a real biggie, right? Because I'm not even sure I got this one down. Right? But Moses says, no, 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 this is, this is simple. Right? I get this in my bones. All right, so let's move on. I want to I show you um, a couple of other ways of thinking about this, though. So Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi, who's a, a great contemporary um, uh, scholar and theologian who, who just recently uh, passed away, uh, we just uh, commemorated his shloshim, um, he says the following, but we are not always aware that we are in the presence of God. So that means tuning in to the awareness that we are being seen. And it's the awareness that we are being seen that is the source of what we call the fear of God. Here, we're not talking so much about fright, but respect. In Hebrew, the letters of the word fear, yirah, can be rearranged to spell ro'eh, to see. In Latin, that is spectare, from which we get inspect, to look closely, or respect, to look again. The double take we do when we become aware that we are being watched. 
So when I talk to people, I often say, I'm fully aware this talk is being monitored for quality assurance. <laughs> Be believing that the Ribono Shalom is doing the monitoring. Once you begin with that awareness, then the individual differences start coming in according to whatever a person needs to be attuned to. Okay? So, um, it doesn't have to be a, um, a uh, vengeful and wrathful and um, punishing God that you stand in reverence of. But the attitude that Reb Zalman is pointing out, that is, I think, foundational to the Jewish religious outlook in the world, is that, um, is that we are not operating in a, um, in, in a, in a, uh, in a vacuum. Right, that there is that there that that what we do matters, right? That there that we are in the presence of God always, um, and that therefore um, we ought to be deliberate and careful about how we behave, right? So, yes. Well, see, it's interesting to think that a lot of people will think that if, if the police had been wearing cameras when Ferguson happened, that you know, people are speculating. They know everything is being recorded. That um, they because the bad guys and the good guys behave better, right. or at least behave differently. Yeah. All right, so I gotta. Though I, I I hear that, and I think that there's a certain degree to which it's true. I mean, if it weren't true, we wouldn't have uh, video cameras everywhere. Yeah. There are a couple of people, if I remember correctly, in the Bible who try to hide from God. Yeah. Cain being one. Uh, Adam, Adam and Eve before Cain, and then uh, Jonah, of course, very famously, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, and um, and and what you know, what they discover in those in those passages that is that uh, is that there is that there is no hiding. Um, now, you, one doesn't have to, I, I don't think, believe in um, a, a a personal. Um, uh, God with eyes that's, that's watching your every move to see the wisdom of this text, to, be, to see the wisdom of uh, living one's life with an awareness that every little deed in public or private matters, right? And that's, I think, the essence of what Moses is talking about here, right? What, what does God want from you? To look at your life, to look at what you say, to look at what you do as if everything matters, as if everything has an impact, as if everything is being watched and recorded for quality assurance, right? That's the essence. That's, that's the key. Now, the, the flip of that is that it, it turns out that, um, that more surveillance doesn't necessarily um, produce the kind of behavior that, uh, that we want. Um, there's a limit to it. Uh, people still behave badly even when they know that they're being watched. And there's a way in which we can get sensitized to, uh, to the surveillance um, so that even though we know we're being watched, we don't really think about it anymore. So that's the, one of the challenges of this is constantly being in that place of awareness of the, uh, uh, of the importance of, of one act, one's actions. Um, there are other problems with surveillance, both from a, uh, um, from a uh, pragmatic standpoint and from, a, I think, a Jewish ethical standpoint, but we won't necessarily get in, into that. You may be right about the, the police in Ferguson, um, but it raises a lot of, uh, a lot of issues. Um, but uh, uh, but here's, what, here's how Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai puts it in the Talmud. He says, when Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai fell ill, his disciples went in to visit him. They said to him, Master, bless us. He said to them, 
May it be God's will that the fear of heaven shall be upon you like the fear of flesh and blood. His disciples said to him, Is that all? He said to them, If only you can attain this. You can see how important this is, for when a man wants to commit a transgression, he says, I hope no man will see me. So what Rabbi Yochanan points out there is, a, is another dimension, right? Which is uh, the dimension of you know, all the video cameras in the world won't necessarily stop bad behavior unless there's a deeper sense within the individual committing the act that um, that uh, that more than just will a, will another person see me, right? But am I seen, right? Is what I'm doing just an action that has no consequence, or is what I'm doing something that is um, that 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 is important that has uh, that that, uh, that that can that can harm or can help? Yeah. Well, that that sounds fun, except for the fact that everything you do. I mean, unfortunately, when that policeman, uh, you know, saw the young man, um, it wasn't something that he had time to assess and you know, and go through all of that. So what happened at times like that? I can only speculate about uh, what happened uh, between um, that officer and Well, and I, I just use that as an example. Yeah. Um, so what this is saying is that uh, is is encouraging um, a kind of life that is that is maybe a little slower and more deliberate and more thoughtful. That we weigh each of our deeds, um, whether we think that they're large or small. Um, in the case that you're talking about, that officer, it seems to me, um, didn't think enough about what he was or wasn't going to do. Um, that's my take as an outsider from the situation, uh, and I think that for a lot of us, whether we're in situations as serious as that or not, uh, many of us don't give enough thought uh, to what it is we are or aren't going to do. We don't live our lives deliberately. And I think that that's really what this is talking about. I think, too, it was like, maybe two of them. There's fear in them. We don't know if it's the same person. There's no reason there, but the fear is playing a very important factor in that reaction. Right. It came from the fact that the company was fear. True. So the question, so this is, this is the issue, and, and it goes to what you're talking about, right? Who do you fear? Right? And I think that that may be part of this, too, is that one's primary fear should be of God and not of human beings. Right? Um, and if one's primary fear is of God, right, that, uh, um, you know, am I, am I seen in a cosmic sense? Um, do I have to be accountable for my deeds, not just to my boss, right, but to the, to the majesty of the cosmos? Um, do I have to be accountable for it? I think that, that we might act differently. Now, I don't want to necessarily speculate on, on that situation. Um, in general, but the rabbis of the Mishnah, I didn't put this on our text because I want to keep it to a few pages, but the rabbis of the Mishnah say it this way. Um, Rebbe, who, who's the editor of the Mishnah, um, says, ponder three things and you will avoid committing a sin. Keep in mind what is above you, an eye that sees, an, e an ear that hears, a book in which all your deeds are recorded. Right? Now, it doesn't say you're going to get punished for one way or the other, but if... It's, it's like what they say that, that uh, one of the best ways to manage one's weight is to keep a food journal, right? Because you start being deliberate and conscious about what you're putting in your body, right? So imagine that someone's keeping a journal of every single thing that you do. Would you act differently? And I think that the answer for many of us is yes, right? Um, 
So there's just one other way of looking at this fear thing that I want to point out, then we'll move on to the next piece. So um, that's Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and he interprets fear more like awe. But I think he gets to a very similar kind of place. So awe is an intuition for the dignity of all things, a realization that things not only are what they are, but also stand, however remotely, for something supreme. Awe is a sense for the transcendence, for the reference everywhere to mystery beyond all things. It enables us to perceive in the world intimations of the divine, to sense the ultimate and the common and the simple, to feel in the rush of the passing the stillness of the eternal. What we cannot comprehend by analysis, we become aware of in awe. It's a way of encountering the world that's different from seeing the world as banal and banal, 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 banal and mundane. Right? That, uh, that, that every interaction we have um, and every action we take um, uh, and, and all that we see and don't see is infused with uh, the presence of the divine. Um, and how would we live our lives differently if we had that awareness in each and every moment in our lives? Right? That's awe. That's why this is the, the, what God asks of us primarily is to approach the world with that kind of lens. Yes. A fallacy is, in my mind, that you're saying that goodness is simply because of your fear of retribution. From God, but if a person does not believe in God yeah. and is good, yeah. he is good for his own intrinsic and sort of in a platonic sense. Yeah, isn't that better than being good because of your fear of retribution? Good. So you are Maimonides, right? And we'll get to Maimonides in a second, right? And I think you're absolutely right, and that's why I think Moses doesn't stop at fear in. Is telling, right? So he says, fear is the first thing, but it's not the last thing, right? And it, and if you are able to live your life in a way that moves beyond fear, um, according to some, Maimonides being one, we'll see, that's preferable, better, uh, more moral, a higher level than if you live your life oriented primarily by fear. Now, we, we've seen that, that fear isn't necessarily predicated on the fear of punishment or, or a fear of a, of a punishing God. But I would say the way Albert Einstein described uh, his relationship to the cosmos, or more currently the way Neil deGrasse Tyson in the more recent Cosmos series de describes his relationship to, to the universe, he doesn't believe in God, but he is able to stand in awe of, um, of, of his place in the cosmos. Now, that's not the same thing as, as an eye that sees and an ear that hears, but it is it does produce, I think, a couple things that fear does as well. Like G.D. said, it produces a sense of one's, um, the humility of one's place, right? That, um, uh, that, that, that the world doesn't exist in the language uh, um, of, uh, of Jewish tradition some places, the world doesn't exist for us. Right? And we would act differently in the world if we uh, had that sensibility, I think, in, in, all, of our, um, in uh, all of our interactions and all of our encounters. Um, yes? The last sentence in this fourth point, what we cannot comprehend by analysis, we become aware of it all. When you study... First, 
that, that, that's true. That's true. Um, and that's, that's, I think, why um, Heschel uh, reverts frequently to the mystery of, uh, of, uh, of being. Um, and there are a lot of mysteries. Um, and there are some mystery, scientists don't like admitting this, but there are mysteries that are, that are beyond the, the, the realm of science because science is um, uh, uh, founded on a, a method that precludes some kinds of questions, right, and, and therefore some kind of uh, answers. So there, there, there are and, and likely will always be certain mysteries, um, and, uh, and, and that is a piece of it. Now, I, again, um, I don't necessarily think that uh, that that what's being described by Moses here, though certainly in context Moses probably meant this, but I don't think it necessarily has to be about fearing God. But it can be about even if you don't believe in God, it still I think is a valuable call it spiritual, call it moral exercise to uh, to to live one's life in the way that's being described, right? That all of your deeds matter, and that uh, and that nothing is invisible. Right? There's no such thing as a private act, right? Because everything matters. Right? That's what it. That's what it means. And I think that there's a lot of value to that, which is why I think Moses puts in there. But he doesn't stop there. That's. Um, I'm glad that you uh, brought us to that place. And so he goes next to uh, walk only in his paths to love him. Okay. So those are a couple of things. Look at number five here. And some of you may have heard me talk about this before. And in fact, I talked about this in my. Uh, uh, sermon I gave in my interview weekend, uh, not this passage in particular, but this interpretation by the Talmud. So Rabbi Chama, the son of Rabbi Hanina, further said, what means the text, you shall walk after the Lord your God? This is an instance in which Deuteronomy is a little bit repetitive. Deuteronomy says basically the same thing, slightly differently, uh, a few chapters later. So this says um, you should walk in God's ways, and this says you should walk after the Lord your God. So, but I think basically saying the same thing. Is it then possible for a human being to walk after the Shekhinah, the divine presence? Or has it not been said, for the Lord thy God is a devouring fire? Right? How can it be that a human being can, uh, can, can uh, walk after God? Right? Can be present with God, can be with God. And so here's what he says it means. The meaning is to walk after the attributes of the Holy One, praised be God, blessed be he. As he clothes the naked so do thou also clothe the naked. The Holy One, blessed be he, sorry, that should, I, I put the ellipses too soon, visited the sick, so do thou also visit the sick. The Holy One, blessed be he, comforted mourners, so do thou also comfort mourners. The Holy One, blessed be he, buried the dead, so do thou also bury the dead. This is, I think, going to be, and we'll see this a little bit later too, one of the most crucial messages of this passage, uh, which is whether or not one fears God or even believes in God, um, the pathway to um, the upright life, the moral life, the good life, is to, um, is to live in the way that we would imagine God acting, to act in the way that we would imagine God acting, that we believe a God of goodness and justice would act in the world. Now, that can be literal. You can actually believe in that God. Or you can say, if I did believe in a God of pure goodness and pure justice, what are the sorts of things that that God would do? And that would actually probably give most of us um, a pretty good indication of the direction we should take with our life and what we should do with our life. And if we ask ourselves that question in a moment of, uh, of, of debate, 
um, between one course of action or another, my guess is that, uh, that, that frequently we actually might be able to um, uh, come to the, the right conclusion. Right? But we often, we, we uh, debate and deliberate uh, difficult moments in our life, difficult questions in our life, but what if we stopped and asked and said, what would, what would a God of pure goodness and justice do in this situation? Maybe that would complicate things more, but maybe it would make things more clear. But in any event, what Moses is getting at here is, um, fear God or not fear God, um, one of the things that encapsulates the Jewish program, and I think he might say the human program, is to act in the world the way God would act in the world. That's right. Right, and I think that that's what uh, Moses is saying here, right? The, the, the whole idea that we can emulate God um, is related to the idea that each of us is created in the image of God, right? Uh, um, or I'm not sure which is the uh, uh, cart and which is the horse, right? Maybe we, maybe the Bible says we're created in the image of God because we have the capacity to emulate God, or maybe we have the capacity to emulate, emulate God because we're made in the image of God. But either way, right, these are interconnected ideas, right, that we have capability of godliness. All right, so... But not perfection. But not perfection. But, not perfection. but I, you know, I think that, uh, that uh, it, it seems to me, even though there are passages in the Torah that, uh, that, that claim God's perfection, there are plenty of passages in the Torah that uh, make, I think, the complete opposite argument, right? So a God that creates a world that is so... Uh, burdened with uh, violence and injustice, that God needs to destroy the world in the flood. That's the one you had in mind, right? That God needs to destroy the world in the flood, and then says, God, um, God, uh, what's the word? Uh, repented of uh, having created man, or something like that, right? A perfect God does not create a world that later realizes, oh, you know, that actually didn't turn out so well, right? Was that Moses arguing to the God about destroying all the people, starting a new people? He says, they're doing this, which you may have them do this. Right, right, and uh, and um, and you know, part of Moses' argument is based on you know, there's no guarantee that starting the world again through me is going to produce any better results than it did before. And and the only way Moses can have that argument with God in the first place is if it, if you if one presumes that God um, can be persuaded, right, that God might be making a mistake in God's course of action. And if that's the case, then it's hard to make the argument that God that the Torah says God is perfect, even though some places it might say that explicitly, but in the vast preponderance of instances of God's relationship with humanity in the Torah seems very clear that God is not. So that strikes me as all the more so um, how it's a useful model for human beings. We may not hit the mark always, we may not get it perfect, but there's at least um, a goal to which we can um, reasonably strive. Um, okay, let's look back at what Moses says. So the next thing, not only to walk in God's path, and we'll get to more to that in, in a few minutes, but to love God. So that's a tough one. Because look at the way Maimonides, if you look on uh, page 3, says it means to love God. Number 8. What is the proper love for God? It is to love God with an exceedingly great and intensely powerful love until one is constantly enraptured by it 
and stricken like a lovesick individual, whose mind is at no time free from passion for a particular lover, the thought of the lover filling one's heart at all times, when sitting down or rising up, when eating or drinking. Even more intense should be the love of God in the hearts of those who love God, and this love should constantly absorb the individual, as commanded us with the phrase, you shall love the Holy One, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. It reminds me in a way of, um, and I've been thinking about Robin Williams a lot uh, over the past few days, um, uh, of uh, a line that he has in Goodwill Hunting, um, where he talks to Will, he talks to Matt Damon's character, and he says, he's talking about um, uh, his, uh, his ex, not his ex-wife, his, his deceased wife, uh, in the movie, uh, and he says to Will, um, I doubt you've ever loved someone that much because that would mean opening yourself up to loving something more than you love yourself. And I think that that's what Maimonides is getting at here, is uh, orienting ourselves to the world in such a way that there is, uh, that there is something great that we love beyond ourselves that we aren't the center of our own world and that we don't think that we are the center of the world, right? That, I think, is in a lot of ways what the love of God is. Now, I think that it's a big challenge, right? The way Maimonides describes loving God, don't tell Adira. I'm not sure if I've ever loved anybody uh, or anything uh, at the way he's describing, except for maybe, you know, we're first dating or something like that, right? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an absorption, a, a preoccupation. But I, but I do know this, that, um, that the way I love Adira, I think, is uh, comparable, in a way, to the, um, to the kind of love Maimonides is describing uh, to God in, in this way, um, which is that um, nothing in my life is more important than her, and also uh, my daughter in a, in a different way, um, that... Um, that, that virtually everything I do, even though I, I admittedly often have selfish motivations as well, virtually everything I do, I do with a consciousness that I'm also trying to do it for her and for her. Um, and the other thing is that there are plenty of things that I do that I would never fathom doing were I not in love with Adira, right? Then the common one that, uh, that, that husbands give all the time, but I'll give it because it doesn't give you that much of a window into my life, is putting the toilet seat down, right? Um, uh, I, I, I just need to speak to the women in the room for a second, okay? This doesn't make any sense. If you can't, uh, if you can't look before you sit, <laughs> oh yes, I know, I, I understand, um, which I, and I have as well done that, um, uh, I've done that as well, but, the, um, but, but again, it goes to the issue, right, uh, we don't usually drop our cell phones in the toilet because we're usually trying to be careful. We usually don't like just you know, assume. Okay, well, you know the toilet. When the toilet seat's down, you don't still drop your cell phone in the toilet because oh, the toilet seat's down. No, you try to hold on to your cell phone. All right. So, <laughs> ladies, I just need to point out to you this is fine, I, I, but um, you should look before you sit. Okay. <laughs> and and by the way, since we're egalitarian here, I'll say uh, that uh, that that I'm happy to put the toilet seat up. I put the toilet seat down if 
you agree to leave the toilet seat up after you're done. I think it's only fair. But, you know, anyway, it doesn't make any sense. But... But, but this is the thing. This is the thing. I, right, those are the rules. I don't do it. I don't do that because I think, oh, you know, if I leave the toilet seat uh, down again, uh, or rather, if I leave the toilet seat up again, I'm going to have to sleep on the couch or, or my wife is going to divorce me. That, that probably won't happen, or at least that's not my primary motivator in doing it. I do it because I love her and I honor what she wants and I try within reason to give her the things that she wants. Um, and, uh, and, and, and those are the things that we do motivated on love. So is love a uh, less effective motivator than fear? I'm not so sure. It depends on what the thing, what the behavior is that you need to motivate. Can't be the same. Take the fear of losing a love be a fear. Uh, yes, it can. Look, it can. Losing the love of God or distancing themselves. Distancing yourself from God. To yeah. A lot of people is a, is a worse fear than retribution. Absolutely. Right. So it's a different dimension of fear. Right. It's not a fear of you know will I will I have to sleep on the couch? It's a fear of I don't want to damage this relationship. Right. Right? And in fact, we'll see uh, in just a moment, right, really what this text is getting at is, um, you know, if, if you distill what Moses is saying down to its, its core, one of them is, even further, one of them is that God wants relationship, right? And that, um, and that, the, uh, um, uh, uh, that the good life, that's not only the life of goodness, but a, 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 a good life is, um, is one in which we seek out and live out and cherish and nurture that relationship as well. Okay, so um, so that's what Maimonides says. But so look, just a couple of things here. So um, on this issue of uh, of love and fear, uh, Mishnah Sota gets to this issue of uh, of what's what's a more powerful motivator or what's a better motivator, love or fear, and it says greater is one who acts out of love than one who acts out of fear. Right, and then Maimonides, as I mentioned before says the following, a person should not say, I will fulfill the mitzvot of the Torah and occupy myself in its wisdom in order to receive all the blessings which are contained within it, or in order to merit the life of the world to come. It's not fitting to serve God in this manner. A person whose service is motivated by these factors is considered one who serves out of fear. He is not on the level of the prophets or the wise. They are trained to serve God out of fear until their knowledge increases and they serve out of love. So for Maimonides, the uh, serving God out of a fear of punishment or um, or, or a fear of uh, a greater power is uh, is not the pri- shouldn't be the primary motivator. It's something that we should be able to transcend. We should strive to transcend. One who serves God out of love occupies himself in the Torah and the mitzvot and walks in the path of wisdom for no ulterior motive, not because of fear that evil will occur, nor in order to acquire benefit. Rather, he does what is true because it is true. Now. I have to tell you that the Aristotelian Maimonidean approach to ethics uh, proves to be very difficult under scrutiny, scrutiny um, in the sense that it's very hard to find a totally selfless uh, act. Right? There's a great episode of Friends where uh, where Phoebe is uh, challenged to, uh, to to do something totally selfless, and she discovers that it's really hard because. After you do a good deed for somebody, you feel good, and then that's a selfish thing. Um, so she tries to do something good for someone else that, like, really she doesn't want to do, right? Um, so uh, you do have that problem, but again, what, what, uh, what, what we're getting at here is, I think, 
uh, one of the ways in which we can look at what Moses is saying is that we can start from a place of fear, um, but the goal is to move toward a, a place of love. And maybe what Moses is saying is that these are incremental steps in relationship. Fearing God, walking in God's paths, and loving God. Right? Loving God being the highest of those. Uh, but if you can't come to a place where you love God in the way Maimonides described, um, walking in God's paths, doing the sorts of things that you uh, uh, believe God would do in the world is, is a, a pretty good substitute. Um, it's at least a, a step along the journey. Yeah? It seems to me there are very few universal principles. Uh, you can make a case where murder is justifiable, or stealing, if your child is, is uh, starving. Right. But the basic, a universal principle of treating everyone as you would have yourself treated as a prime directive has nothing to do with religion or God, but permeates everything. Um, yes. However, um, the Bible's perspective on that issue, I think, is a little bit different, right? So in the Bible's formulation of that golden rule, it's love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord, right? And most of the commentators say, well, what does I am the Lord have to do with the first part of that passage? And the answer that they give is um, the, the, the way to sort of uh, back up that important way of relating to other people is essentially the fear of heaven. Right, is a, a sense of the authority of the commandment. Um, whether or not that's actually uh, true, I don't know. We, I, but I would, I would say as a, as a test case, most of us don't do a very good job of following that commandment, loving our neighbor as ourselves. So I think the Torah makes a good case that you need additional motivation to do it besides this is just the right thing to do. Right? And so that's why it backs it up with I am the Lord. But uh, I hear you. Um, okay, let's go, let's go on a little bit. Um, mark the heavens to their uttermost reaches belong to the Lord your God, the earth and all that is on it. Yet it was to your fathers that the Lord was drawn in his love for them, so that he chose you, their lineal descendants, from among all peoples, as is now the case. I, I don't want to spend too much time on this uh, part of the passage, but I will just note um, a theme that comes up again in the next uh, little section, um, which is, again, I'm going to bring Robin Williams in. Um, uh, uh, when he's the genie in Aladdin, right? His line is "Phenomenal cosmic power, itty bitty living space," right? That's what God is describing here. God has the capacity; is should be totally impersonal, just a force in the cosmos, right? Created the world, an absentee landlord. That God chooses to love and chooses to live life in relationship. And if we are called to, uh, to act like God in the world, then one of the primary directives is to choose love and to choose living our lives in relationship. Right? Just as God chose us, we need to choose others. And we need to treat others through love and through relationship. And it offers an avenue to cultivate relationship with God. Right, So God is not... Uh, uh, at least not only a, uh, a distant and personal force, that God has a, uh, at least a personal dimension and a personal, uh, and, and an ability to cultivate a personal relationship with the human being. Right? Um, for me, prayer 
doesn't make a lot of sense unless there is an aspect of God that contains that possibility of real relationship. I don't know how to pray to a force. Um, even though I might believe that on some philosophical level, um, God is primarily a, uh, um, a, a force in the universe. Right? Um, uh, the, the God of the philosopher doesn't always jive with the God of the prayer book. Right? And I think it's okay to live in that tension of the God that we, uh, that we uh, construct by reason um, isn't necessarily the God of experience and the God of relationship, and they don't have to be the same thing. In the same way that I'm a different person in this context than I am at home, right? And I'm actually not an abstraction, right? There's a reality to me, but I have different uh, interactions and manifestations and relationships. Um, so God can be the same thing too if we uh, if we if we choose to view God that way. That's one of the lessons, the great lessons that uh, Reb Zalman gave to me is, he said, I have such trouble praying, and he said, because your God is the God of the philosophers. The Kabbalists had this system too. They said, you know, the God of the philosophers makes a lot of sense, but it's not the God that we experience in reality. So we'll call the God of philosophers Ain Sof, and we'll say, which means um, infinity, we can't really say or know anything about that God, but we can talk about how we believe God manifests in the world, and that's more tangible, and we can relate to that. I want to take us back I happen to agree with you that I think there is intrinsic value in being good for sake. So, for example, uh, in my professional situation, there are some things that I do and some things that I don't do, but always with a thought in my mind, what would I do, what would I expect of someone if I were, if things were opposite? What should I do in this case? Would I like, how would I like to be treated? Putting myself in that, in that other person's shoes. And that frequently, if I get impatient with somebody or something is not going well, that gives me the, the motivation to try to do the right thing because I can internally reverse things and say, gosh, if I were sitting in this chair, I would want someone to do the best possible thing for me. And to me, I mean, that, that's a motivation for me. And I, I think that it speaks to, I think you brought up some very good points about the intrinsic nature of simply putting yourself in the other person's place, and uh, and, and that it's, that being good is, is good for its for its own sake, and because you want to treat someone like you would like to be treated yourself, pure and simple. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that that there that uh, that there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I, I I will say that, uh, that I think that it's not totally unimpeachable, and as the situations get more complex the uh, calculation is more complex, maybe even impossible, which is why I think, one of the reasons I think that when the Bible says, uh, when, when Leviticus says, love your neighbor as yourself, it adds, I am the Lord, because it's what it's saying is that there, that in, in common human interaction, that's a good way of evaluating how I should behave, right? Love your neighbor as yourself, good. But there are other situations, you know, war is a really good example in which um, the calculation of uh, don't do unto others what they what 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 rather love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I wouldn't want myself uh, bombed, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that I shouldn't bomb my neighbor if they're launching bombs at me, right? So right. So you you do need more than I think just that golden rule. Although I think in most human interactions, the golden rule is a, is is a, an important one to follow. Um, so okay. 
So let's just uh, get to the last uh, part here, which is, I think, the, uh, um, the, the punchline of it all. Cut away, therefore, the thickening about your hearts, and stiffen your necks no more. I mean, sorry, I'm on page 1, verse 16. Cut away, therefore, the thickening about your hearts, and stiffen your necks no more. The Hebrew is a little bit more colorful. The Hebrew says, umaltem et orlat levadchem which means circumcise, therefore, the foreskins of your hearts. Okay? A little more colorful. Um, obviously a metaphor, <laughs> thankfully, um, although I do know some good cardiologists. Um, obviously a metaphor. So the, the, what's, what's the metaphor getting at here? That's really the question, because it's obviously not telling us uh, to, to cut open our hearts, and it's not telling us not to circumcise uh, um, uh, other parts of our body. Um, it's saying this in addition to it. So here's um, what uh, um, a, a couple of uh, comments that I think are, are really important to keep in mind. So Rabbi Shai Held, a contemporary rabbi, says, ultimately, this is page three, number nine. Ultimately, both Deuteronomy and its translators make the same decisive point. Judaism asks for the heart and the deed, not one or the other. Okay, so when it talks about walking in God's ways, loving God, fearing God, what it gets to here, the, the, the foundation, the ability to do that is to enable your heart, right? To soften your heart, to prepare your heart to, uh, to let God in, to love God. The, look at number 11. The heart in Hebrew thought is the preeminent metaphor for the inner being of a person, the seat of intelligence, the seat of emotions, and the seat of volition, the will, right? So when it says the heart, what it means is Everything inside of us. And when it says, so circumcise everything inside of you, cut away the thickening of everything inside of you, every fiber of your being, your will, it's saying, get rid of that which serves as a barrier between you and God, between you and goodness, between you and relationship, right? between you and love. And we all do that. We all have that. We all have our own internal defenses, we all have our, uh, our, our own thicknesses, our own stubbornness. Um, we, we have that. And so what Moses is saying here is that the only way to get to a place of loving God in the way I'm describing, the only place to get to the fear of God, um, the, the only way to, um, to, to be open to the awe of the world in which we live, of, uh, of, of uh, seeing the um, the. Um, reality of the importance of our deeds is to um, is to remove that part of us that is um, a barrier between us and the divine. And here he goes on further. What is circumcision of the heart? The second half of the verse elucidates the first. A circumcised heart is the antithesis of a stiffened neck. Bible scholar Moshe Weinfield explains that an uncircumcised heart, like an uncircumcised ear and uncircumcised lips, means that an organ is incapable of absorbing feelings and impressions from the outside. To circumcise the heart, then, is to open it, and thereby to become genuinely receptive to God and God's command. The image of a circumcised heart thus symbolizes achieving a condition of responsive openness to God's word. Moses thus demands that the people totally transform their inner lives, so that they will now respond to God's command with loyalty, readiness, and faithfulness. A relationship with God requires both a concrete physical act and a profound inner transformation. 
Right? So God's only asking for the complete overhaul of our outer and inner lives. But that's the truth. That's the truth. It's profoundly challenging, but that's what Moses is saying. That, uh, that, uh, that we may not get it perfectly, we may not always get there, but the, but the effort of uh, preparing ourselves for relationship with God and uh, for uh, the kind of life that follows from that kind of relationship um, is at the core of Jewish religious striving. Because think about this. The great villain of the Bible is who? Pharaoh. Pharaoh, right? The great villain of the Bible is Pharaoh. And what do we know about Pharaoh, about Pharaoh's anatomy? In His heart was hardened, right? So here we have the dichotomy, I think. You have a choice between being the kind of person that Pharaoh was or being someone who is the antithesis of that. Being someone with a hard heart, being someone with an open and soft heart. And the choice is profoundly ethical, because what was the result of Pharaoh's hard-heartedness, his stubbornness, his unwillingness to hear God's call? Oppression, subjugation, injustice, right? And the Bible is saying that, that, that only by opening our hearts, by softening our hearts, by being, forgive me, this may be a loaded political statement, by being a bleeding heart, can we really fulfill what Judaism is calling us to do in this world? I, I hate that pejorative of bleeding heart. Because what the Bible is calling us to is, I think, having a bleeding heart. Is caring about our actions. Is caring about other people. Is caring about the cries of the oppressed. Is caring about injustice. To be the antithesis of Pharaoh. And that's why the uh, immediately after it says the following for the, uh, page one back at page one for the Lord your God is God supreme and Lord supreme the great the mighty and the awesome God who shows no favor and takes no bribe right God is phenomenal cosmic power right and by the way if you're following along at home that phrase the Lord supreme the great the mighty and the awesome God you will find that in the first paragraph of the Amida right Ha'el Hagadol Hagibor Bahanora who shows no favor and takes no bribe, but upholds the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the stranger, providing him with food and clothing. You too must love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Right? The essence, Moses is saying, of Jewish religious striving is to open our hearts, not only to relationship with God, but to relationship with each other that our hearts should bleed as God heart, God's heart bleeds for people who are oppressed and marginalized and hurt and are the victims of injustice and poverty. These things should arouse our pain and should arouse our consciousness. We too must love the stranger. Right In the same breath, Moses says, love God, love the stranger. These are part and parcel of the same thing. And you might even go so far to say that if you do love the stranger, then you are acting out of love of God. Right? That's the transitive power of love. It isn't always true that if you love God, then you love the stranger, although it should be the case, according to this text. And so I just want to uh, uh, leave on, uh, um, uh, close on, on these two thoughts here. So Arya Cohen, Injustice in the City, a great book. 
my professor in rabbinical school, he picks up on this idea that, uh, by the way, 36 times in the Torah is some version of uh, this passage, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Or defend the cause of the widow and the orphan and the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. 36 times in the Torah, more prevalent than any other commandment. So there's no indication that uh, of what the what the essence, what the drive, what the mission of Judaism is, if you take away nothing else, that's it. That's the cause. And so I love the way Arya Cohen puts it. The lesson of the slavery and liberation in Egypt is not an exhortation to dwell on shared victimization. Right? So saying that, love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt, it's not like you go to somebody who's victimized and you say, by the way, remember my ancestors were slaves too, so like I get it, I get it man. Um, that's not what it's saying. This, Nachmanides writes, is an added explanation. Even the empathy of shared suffering is useful only for another purpose. Do not think, the Torah tells us, that the stranger is powerless, that she has no one to come to her aid, that, she ha that he has no one to save him from your hands. Your experience in Egypt proved that wrong. Right? So remember, you were once slaves in the land of Egypt, not only to have empathy with the person who's suffering, who's the victim of injustice, but also to know the consequence of injustice. We know the consequence of injustice is that God is always on the side of justice. Even if God can't always affect justice, God is always on the side of injustice. And it's very much as Martin Luther King said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And it's true that if you look at the arc of human history, I think even though we have lots of really horrible bumps and hiccups on the way, we are moving toward a more just and more peaceful society. It may not look at it looking at current events, but I believe we're moving there. And that's exactly what Nachmanides says. Your experience in Egypt proved that wrong. For when Pharaoh and the Egyptians ignored you and did not hear your cries, I saw the manner in which the Egyptians oppressed you. It's not the empathy of shared suffering which is at stake here, but the certain knowledge that God hears the cries of those whom others wish to ignore and who benefit thereby from their continued exploitation. If you will not hear their cries or if you will oppress them and thereby cause their crying out, God will hear them, they will be redeemed, but you will be punished. Nachmanides teaches us that the experience we share with all marginal, oppressed, or exploited people is the possibility of redemption. The Torah puts this starkly. To quote Eldridge Cleaver, what we are saying today is that you are either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. You can choose to be like God. There goes that other piece of walking God's ways, right? You can choose to be like God and hear the cries of the oppressed. Or you could choose to be like Pharaoh, right? You could choose to have the hardened heart and ignore those cries. In either event, the oppressed will be redeemed. If, however, the salvation is left to God, you will go the way of the Egyptians. So I think that that passage, that this passage that Moses, what does God ask of us, is in a lot of ways primarily about, even though it starts off talking about the relationship we, we have with God, the place it gets to, and this is why I'm, I'm deeply appreciative of your comments, is that the place it gets to is the relationship we have with each other. The relationship we have 
with humanity, the relationship we have with the world. Because the fundamental thing that God asks us, the place that this text drives, is to love those who are oppressed and are victims of injustice. And I just want to add, because we mentioned it at the beginning, and I want to add a dimension of current events to this, and I might regret it after, but I want to uh, bring one comment by a, a columnist named Jay Michelson, uh, who wrote, a, I think, a beautiful piece, Why Jews Should Care About Ferguson. Like it or not, then, most American Jews, most American Jews find ourselves on the side of privilege. We may be off-white, as some theorists have proposed, but we're close enough. If we stand up for the underdog, it will be out of ethics, not self-interest. Yet this, too, is exactly what core Jewish tradition teaches us. Yes, there are texts which speak of Jewish supremacy, of conquering everyone else, and of slavery, misogyny, and the rest. But exhortations of non-oppression of foreigners are more numerous. Lists a few. Most important, I think, is Exodus 22:21. but you'll see it's virtually identical to our passage. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Ours says it in the positive, love the stranger. Do, this one says, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Note the past tense. The text is speaking to a people no longer victimized, but now with the power to victimize others. It's a text for our time. And I think Moses' words are also a text for our time. Right? The language of love the stranger, love the victimized, love those who are the victims of injustice and, and work to their benefit because that's what God would do is phrased in the, in, the, in the present tense. You're no longer, in institutional ways, the victims of injustice. There are anti-Semitic incidents, Lord knows, they are in, occurring with increasing regularity. But anti-Semitic incident, incidents in America today um, are incidents largely of the, um, of the powerless and marginalized against a fairly entrenched uh, and, and, uh, um, uh, and, and stable group, which is us. It's not the same as the Tsar's army uh, leading a pogrom against your village. So we are on the other side of the divide now. And so we, I think the Torah is calling uh, uh, us to a consciousness of who is on the other side of that divide and to have our hearts melt for those people and do what we can to alleviate their suffering and to uh, remove all semblances of injustice and oppression from their lives. Now, you can take with that what you will um, in the lessons of, uh, of current events. I know where I take it, but I think that Moses' uh, 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 message here to the Jewish people at the cusp of the Promised Land uh, calls out to us um, and says, what is at the core of the Jewish tradition? What does God ask of us? Only this, ultimately to uphold the cause of the fatherless and the widow, to love the stranger, providing him with food and clothing, to love the stranger, for you too were strangers in the land of the Thank you. Shalom.